Another scholar is missing, informed Master Gallion as he sat in the wooden chair opposite the desk of Headmistress Floquet in her ornately ordained receiving room. The headmistress's manor sat just across the lane from the entry to the school where Cassie had first arrived. The master's manor was a beautiful structure, built in stone like the rest of the buildings, but surrounded by an immaculately manicured garden in the old French style that extended several yards in every direction around the manor and nearly half an acre in the front. This time, it was one of our most promising students, Janice. And counting last year, that makes six. Six in less than a year. What are we to tell the family? Master Gallion was a slight man, with nervous hands that were far better suited to the ethereal trills he could achieve on the flute which was his primary instrument. It was no coincidence that had earned him the nickname Mouse, for indeed, he looked very much like one. Patience, Grimpin. We will get to the bottom of this. Do you have any further information? Are there any similarities to the other students that have gone missing? The headmistress sat with arms folded neatly across her legs, wearing a comfortable turtleneck sweater and soft woolen tailored pants. Her white hair fell loosely about her shoulders in astonishingly full curls. There is a digital file that the two in my society both checked out before their disappearances. It's just a simple sample tape of old... Arias and arpeggios, the, the scholars use in warm-ups. There's nothing to it, really, but I have it for you. Grimpen handed a slim metal audio player to the headmistress with a shake of his head. I didn't get much from questioning the other masters, but it appears that the two students so far have gone missing from the music society, uh, two from performing arts and two from the visual arts and writing. I suppose that the digital arts class is too new to be affected by this sort of thing, but I've spoken to Ignis to alert him. You've done well, Grimpin. Really. Mistress Floquet accepted the device and set it on a small wooden table that was standing next to her chair. I will handle this as I've handled the others. Until we know more, we can only assume that the student has run off, which is why we brought on Alistair and his security team. Grimpin shuddered at the mention of the new security officer. That, that, that man is disturbing. Don't you think we'd be better off getting the police involved? Mistress Floquet rose smoothly from her chair, hands still held loosely together in front of her. You and I both know the answer to that. The directors will never consent to bringing public authorities into campus matters. Taking this as his cue, Master Gallion rose to his feet, offering a slight bow to the headmistress. I'm aware, headmistress. I, I just don't like it. Not at all. He turned slowly then, hands trembling slightly at his side as he walked toward the exit and passed the row of headmaster portraits and out into the surrounding garden. Grandmaster Caius would have known what to do. This he said only after he was outside with the door closed safely behind him. While the new headmistress was both industrious and accomplished, the disappearances had begun shortly after her appointment and Master Gallion could not help but connect the two. As Master Gallion crossed the lane and entered the side door to the Master's Hall, he paid no mind to a group of first-year scholars that were walking together and chattering excitedly as they were experiencing their first half-holiday. A half-holiday was how the school described the Thursday and Saturday of each week, where there were no lessons following lunch. On these days, scholars were permitted to pursue whatever they liked, often involving a sport or additional work on their season project. 
But the first half holiday of the year was always celebrated with a field day full of competitions, food, and festivities. Cassie had attempted to join the group that was jaunting down the lane toward the practice fields where the games were to be held, but to her chagrin, they politely ignored her, which left her awkwardly trailing behind, attempting to hold an enthusiastic smile on her face. After the group rounded the corner of Cressage Hall, where math and science disciplines were taught, Cassie broke away along the path heading back toward the center of campus. Her brow furrowed in frustration until she looked up at a young man aiming a digital camera at her. Oh, don't stop now. That was absolutely brilliant. No, just ignore me, please. It's so hard to capture raw rejection like that. Cassie blushed, her fist clenching once again as she halted, not knowing where to walk now. Please put that thing down, she asked in as polite a voice as she could muster. But why? Countered the young man as he dropped his lens a tad and looked up from the viewfinder. Don't you want to help me with my project? I'm doing a documentary on scholar experiences. Uh, oh. Responded Cassie, not yet certain how to take this young man who looked to be about her age or possibly a year older. The name's Jimmy. Jimmy Franks. But you can just call me Chopper like everyone else. As he was still holding the camera with the lens facing her, he did not extend a hand, but offered a smile instead. There, now that smile is much better. Though this next part is what I'm really after. Cassie's eyes narrowed in response. I see. And why is that? Oh, wait. First, your name. For the credits, of course. It's Cassie. Cassie Cole. She responded cautiously. What? No, that's not right at all. Jimmy responded as he began to circle around her, the camera still holding her as the focal point. Chopper slid around her until the practice field was at her back. Your name's Judy, isn't it? That's why I need you for my documentary. The Life and Trials of Judy. The young man cackled delightedly <laughs> as Cassie's face fell. She couldn't believe this was happening to her. The next couple of moments slid by as if part of someone else's memory as she strode step by step up to the boy and his camera, grabbing the lens in a firm grip and tearing it from his grasp before smashing the camera into the walkway. Wow, that was perfect! <laughs> exclaimed the boy, who was not at all ready for what came next as Cassie backhanded him across the face before grabbing the lapels of his jacket and pulling herself nose to nose. When she spoke again, her voice was a violent, rasping whisper. Listen, you soggy little worm, with your soft little hands, the next time you call anyone Judy, I want you to remember that we Judys... We come from some mean places that eat little worms like you for breakfast. Shoving the boy away, Cassie kicked the camera and began walking swiftly away with no idea where she was heading, just knowing that she needed to get away from there as swiftly as possible. Faintly, in the background, she could hear the jeers and catcalls of a rowdy group of students that had undoubtedly watched the whole episode with delight and were now closing in on their wounded compatriot. Letting her feet do the walking, Cassie had ensured that she was well out of sight before picking up her pace and literally running along the lane, glad that she had switched into her athletic uniform earlier in the day, as it would give her an excuse for jogging alone with all of the other festivities going on. Tears streaming down her cheeks, however, those would not be so easy to explain away. 
The lane wound around the outer edge of the campus, past the main maintenance buildings and security office until it curved down a shallow slope heading along the edge of a fenced meadow toward the towering forest line that framed the base of a rugged taprock mountain known locally as the Sleeping Turtle for its slumbering turtle-like shape. In many ways, this rugged basalt ridge resembled the landscape in her dreams and was apparently a favorite among the students for free climbing or more casual climbing on some of the fixed gear routes. While she climbed frequently in her dreams, Cassie had never had the opportunity to see what it would be like in the real world. Well, I suppose that this is as good a time as any to give it a try. She murmured as she brushed her tears aside and jogged down the lane toward the forest and the towering rocky crags. Of course there would be a map. I suppose most of the climbing points have safety lines and nets, too. Cassie muttered with no small amount of disgust as she drew up to a small path that led into the wood. A wide wooden sign was posted at the trailhead, highlighting a number of trails and giving names to various climbing surfaces, including their grading, the stiffest of them being a 5.12D called Turtle Face. Cassie had no idea what the number meant until she saw the handy key to the side which indicated the climb to be in the middle advanced range. Thinking of jumping already? Sorry, that was a bad joke in poor taste. A slim young woman around Cassie's same age appeared from behind the sign clutching a loop of rope that hung around her shoulder with a hand that was still whitened from climbing chalk. Don't let them get to you this early. They really don't mean anything. It's just, you know, the thing to do. I, 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 girlfriend, I can read your face like a book. New uni, fresh face, recently crying your eyes out. Obviously not 14. Girls like you and I need to stick together. The name's Whittle, by the way. Whittle. Apple. The slender but muscular girl held out a chalk-covered and calloused hand, adding, Yeah. It could be worse. You could have my name. Real funny prank by the runts, but that's what you get when you grow up where I did. In spite of herself, or perhaps because of what she had just gone through, Cassie barked out a laugh <laughs> that was not at all ladylike before <laughs> clamping her hand over her mouth in embarrassment and taking the girl's hand in a firm shake. Cassie. Cassie Cole. So, I guess you're a, a Judy as well? Oh, I was happy when they called me Judy. Actually let people believe that was my name for the whole first year, cause Whittle Apple. Not so great. But then I got over it. But yes, I'm a Judy as well. From the Eastern Flats. Trident High. Oh my gosh, same here! Cassie exclaimed in amazement and relief. Whoa, you've got climber's hands, or the makings of them. Where on earth does a city girl like you get these kinds of calluses? Whittle commented as she turned Cassie's hand over in her own grip. What? Oh, I don't know. I only climb in my dreams. I guess they're from brushes or sculpting clay. Cassie shrugged in response. Well, if this is what sculpting clay does, count me in on that. Quipped Whittle as she released Cassie's hand and clapped her on the shoulder. Wow, shoulders too? Now you're going to tell me you're a swimmer or some other nonsense. Whittle lofted a brow with a smile. No worries. 
what happens in the flats stays in the flats. Whatever your secret is, it's safe with me. Why don't you join me for lunch? The rocks are getting wet now anyway. I'm hungry. I haven't seen anyone from the flats since my first year. Cassie was only too glad to have found someone with shared experiences and decided immediately to put off her exploration for another day. And so the pair turned and began to make their way back along the lane toward campus. The sounds of the festivities growing as they went. Drawing the long bowie knife against the whetstone in a smooth, continuous pool, Alastair Montrose, the new security chief of the Governor's School for the Arts, lifted the blade for one final inspection before tucking it neatly into the sheath on his right hip. 20 years of special forces, including 15 tours and eight special assignments, and all I get in the end is a post as a babysitter? You know, Garrett, I took this as a favor, but if things get any quieter, you may as well just bury me out back. Alistair's colleague also looked like he'd spent a number of years on special assignments as he sprawled lazily on one of the gators the security team used to get around the campus. This is fine by me. You can do worse, you know. Not a lot of options for old sheepdogs like us these days. I'm surprised they haven't replaced this entirely with drones at this point. The grizzled veteran spit a gritty mixture of tobacco and saliva on the cement floor of the garage before leaning further back and propping his booted feet over the steering wheel. And so, Ollie, those uh, missing kids, what do you think about that? Lifting a hand to cup his chiseled jaw, the chief eyed the corkboard and the lines of strings that connected student photos with various clippings over a map of the campus. Frankly, I still don't see the point in these things. A bunch of strings are supposed to tell me what exactly? <laughs> Why the heck did you put it together if you thought it was useless? It was a fair question, one that Alistair didn't have an answer to. They do it all the time on those shows. I figured there had to be something to it, but nope. It's just an idiotic jumble. Thought Floquet was impressed when she came by the other day. This revelation caused Garrett to sit up. The headmistress came all the way out here? She's made of sterner stuff than you think. Alistair replied as he turned toward his lieutenant. Don't underestimate her. You do realize she's a covert. From what I hear, someone messed with her backstop and she was blown in the middle of an op. You're serious. He had Garrett's full attention now, as the other man was squeezing hard on the lump of tobacco in his mouth. That explains, well, not much, honestly, but it's good to know. It, you didn't feel like you needed to tell me earlier? Would you have said no if I had? <laughs> I, I might have done it for free. <laughs> <laughs> the pair laughed at that while Alistair took a printed photo of the most recent missing student and pinned it beside the growing montage that surrounded the building labeled the Jasper Lydicus Center for the Performing Arts. The Jasper Lydicus Center was home to the Performing Arts Society. Situated on the far western end of campus between Marsh Field and Quibley Hall, where the senior seminars and projects were housed, lovingly called the LID by pretty much everyone, 
given the mouthful that was its formal name, the Jasper Lydicus Center had recently undergone extensive modernization to the tune of nearly a quarter billion dollars in renovations, if the rumors were true. The old stone facing had been replaced by an expansive glass facade that stretched upward at an angle for the full height of the structure. The simple walkway in the front had also been replaced, this time by an impeccably manicured French garden with a fountain rising at its center. The school rag had printed an article on the renovations referring to the prior state as pulchritudinous if not practical, and the new as a bewitching and ostentatious pageant of benefaction. Thus was life described on a campus with young writers. As the girls walked past the center on their way back to campus, Whittle paused, spreading her arms in a magnanimous gesture with a towering crystalline structure glinting in the midday sun behind her. Behold the jewel of Walgrove, the immaculate one from whose bosom shall flow all the greatness this fine institution has to offer the world. Cassie shook her head, slightly embarrassed at the japing, but enjoying the brief show nonetheless. Oh, you of unbelief, Whittle continued in a mock ceremonial voice. You laugh in the face of greatness, for while you behold little, generations to come will know that you once stood upon the greatness from which the fourth civilization arose. <laughs> Whittle couldn't help herself at this point, <laughs> laughing as she spun around, flinging the loops of climbing rope to the side. <laughs> Seriously? Tell me that those are not the lines from the ribbon-cutting ceremony. My dear Judy, you have no idea what a steel trap this mind is, replied Whittle slyly before ducking over to her ropes and gathering them up. Come with me, and let me give you a proper tour, she added conspiratorially, looking around as though expecting to be seen. Oh. Don't tell me there's a secret sublevel where the school is hosting strange experiments. Even as she spoke, Cassie followed her newfound friend as the pair made their way to a gated entryway to the grand French-style garden that framed the entry to the Great Hall, making their way toward a large fountain at the garden's center. What, you heard already? Whittle teased without further comment, skipping ahead to the fountain where she slid to a seat on the edge and patted the spot next to her, indicating that Cassie should sit. As Cassie did so, Whittle leaned into her slightly, while casting her eyes and a hand to the sweeping glass structure to their right. Jasper Lydicus Center. The lid, as we call it. Tell me, what do you see? Cassie sat confused for a moment, enjoying the closeness with her companion, as her prior fears began to fade and thinking that this school might not be as atrocious as she had first thought. Uh, a very large expensive building. Whittle tilted her head back toward Cassie, her eyebrows lowered in a furrow. You are obviously not a scribbler, are you? Mm, I, I paint. Paint, right. Stick to that. The older student responded cheekily before whipping her head back toward the lid. And you? Percussion. Don't ask. Mm, noted. <laughs> Where were we? Oh, yes. This is no ordinary building. It is, in fact, a portal to an entirely new universe. Cassie remained silent, waiting for the joke to continue. But when nothing came, she leaned back to better gauge Whittle's expression. Whittle returned Cassie's question with the addition of a smirk and a lofted brow, 
which Cassie had decided were the woman's most endearing feature by far. I, I know you're joking, but you're joking, right? I have deduced this because I have no other explanation for the disappearances. This time, Whittle shifted her knees toward Cassie, her voice lowering as she continued. Five students that I know of have gone missing in just the past 18 months or so, and three of those have disappeared right here. Whittle pointed a thumb back toward the building for emphasis. Wait, you're serious? Deadly. But why haven't they shut the school down then? Called the police? Is it even safe here? Cassie's voice had risen, showing no small amount of concern. Quiet! Whittle rebuffed in an audible whisper once again looking around before adding, This place is filthy with cash. Do you seriously think they would let public law enforcement into these matters? Half the parents of these students would be happy for a direct payout in return for a missing child. They'd see it as justified ROI. Th that's awful! Cassie put a hand over her mouth, realizing how loudly she had just spoken. She was about to add something further when the sounds of revelry grew louder as a group of students burst over the knoll that separated the lid from Marsh Field. Well, this, my dear first year, is where I depart. Whittle had risen swiftly to her feet and was looking to make a quick exit. You're seriously going to abandon me to this mob? Cassie whined, though. She knew well that she needed to at least try to get to know her classmates. Let's climb sometime. After all of... This has run its course and things settle down. And hey, the smile you were just wearing is a much better look. You should wear it more often. With a wink, the upperclassman was trotting off, her climbing ropes slung back over her shoulder and hair jostling as she went. By the time Whittle had exited the garden, the crowd of first-year scholars had made their way into the maze, stretching in single lines through each of the walkways and linking hands until the whole of the garden was filled. Cassie reluctantly gathered herself to her feet and joined the circle of students that was forming around the fountain in the center. Each of the others had a colored streamer tied on some part of their body, leaving Cassie as the only one without a color. The student to her left, a tall but portly young man with a bulbous nose and heavy chin, wore red, while the girl to her right wore pink. Cassie hadn't quite sorted out all the colors yet, but noted that the yellow of her house was thinly interspersed throughout. Leaping up and onto the rim of the fountain that Cassie had just vacated was a striking upperclassman, both lithe and fit, as he drew himself into a pose. Then the young man lifted an arm as he spun about, his voice strong and musical, easily carrying to the whole group as he opened the ritual with a few melodic lines. Springing high, hands aloft, spinning round, smiles soft, swinging by like a dream, singing golden memories, choosing suns on waning heat, chasing moons, elusive sleep, chilling though a choice may be, choosing is required of thee. Following this pronouncement, the handsome young man bent and theatrical aside with a hand to the corner of his mouth, adding, Or for the less lyrical among us, look to your left, look to your right, one of these scholars you must dance with tonight. Squeals and moans followed his translation, as Cassie looked right toward the girl who was beaming up at a bespeckled but not uncomely young man. Clearly, she was taken, leaving the hand to Cassie's left, whose grip had tightened considerably. Cassie sighed, 
looked over at the boy whose large white nose pimple made focusing on any other feature exceedingly difficult. This can't be happening. She murmured as the boy dropped the other hand he had been holding and turned toward her, leaning down to shout a reply in her ear over the din. Sorry, didn't catch that. The boy laughed, his fetid breath hot against her face, causing Cassie to turn her head to politely hide her disgust. But even doing so didn't save her from the smell of sweat that rolled off of him. Apparently, he had been very active in the games that morning. Still, Cassie figured she should give him the benefit of the doubt. After all, treating others the way you would like to be treated had been hammered into both she and her sister since the time they were very young. I said, uh, uh, when is the dance happening? I missed the first half of the day. Tonight, after dinner, was the overly enthusiastic reply. In so saying, he untied the ribbon from his leg and handed it to her with his name clearly scribbled down one side. Bobby Franks. You could call me Beef. Gamer, like my older brother who's a third year here. The ribbon was soaked in sweat as he dangled it out to her. Here, we're supposed to exchange these so we can find each other tonight at the masquerade. Cassie couldn't believe her luck. Getting matched with the younger brother of the upperclassman that she had just slapped earlier in the day. This was playing out like the worst kind of teen romance novel. Rather than taking the dripping ribbon, she patted at her hips and looked back up at him, feigning shock on her face. Oh no, my ribbon must have fallen off. Wait here and let me go see if I can find it. Bobby Beef Franks was in the process of trying to tie his ribbon to her arm as she said this, which caused him to pause long enough for her to extricate herself with a turn toward the far side of the garden. I think it fell off either somewhere in here or, or on the hill. Why don't you take that side and I'll look on the other? Falling for her ruse, the rotund young man fortunately saw this as a chance to secure his prize and so swiftly agreeing, he moved off toward the far side of the garden as Cassie watched. Once he was out of sight within the throng, she ducked low and made her way in the opposite direction making it safely to the lane where she picked up her pace, jogging back in the direction of the dormitory from which she had emerged this morning. Could it possibly get crazier than this? She wondered aloud as she padded down the lane in the lengthening shadows of the waning daylight. Cassie and the Spectral Shade is an original story written, scored, and narrated by Daniel Nichols and is produced by Good Hand Productions. This narrative-based audio presentation is the second story in the broader Chronicles of Eridal series, which can also be found in bound print and digital book format at major booksellers near you. All of our work at Good Hand Productions is made possible by our patrons, the support of our listening audience, and the tremendous voice talent of our many podcasting creators and friends. Cassie Cole is voiced by the amazing J.D. Rose from Goodham Productions. Sarah Dawson and Aunt Noni are voiced by Nikki Richardson from Top of the Round. Willem Marshall IV is voiced by Storm S. Cone from Goodham Productions. 
Whittle Apple is voiced by Dietrich Marie Bowie. Headmistress Pearl Floquet is voiced by Rachel Finley from Goodham Productions. Ludo Van Ness is voiced by Adam Legrave from The Tall Grass Podcast. Janice Tremaine is voiced by Beth Yadden. Bentley the Bus Driver and Master Grimpen Galleon are voiced by Brad Zimmerman from The Gigantic Adventures of Jeff and Simon and Fate of Bison podcast. Jimmy and Bobby Franks are voiced by Kenneth Eccles from Podcast Reviews Reviews Podcast. Mistress Cressida McLean is voiced by Julie Miller from The Podville Podcast. Master Bale Adonis is voiced by Corbin Miller from The Podville Podcast. Mistress Cynthia Zeltrix is voiced by Haley Munoz from Goodham Productions. Molly O'Dine is voiced by Susanna Lewis from the Thornvale Podcast. Trevor Dawson is voiced by Cody Miller from Goodham Productions. Alastair Montrose and Willem Marshall III are voiced by Jordash Richardson from Top of the Round. Mistress Audrey Maud is voiced by Kate Willinga from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. Garrett Black and Harvey Kettle are voiced by Mike Ashley from Goodham Productions. Lanana is voiced by Brian Dowling from Goodham Productions. The Ningalix is voiced by Jolene Fresquez from Goodham Productions. The music, singing, foley, and sound effects are all original creations of our insanely talented cast and crew at Goodham Productions. 